What would our families look like if we really, truly centered our family life, no matter how big or how small your family is, no matter how many people are in your family, no matter what role you specifically play in your family, what would it look like for your family life to be centered, reoriented around Jesus? Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life. What would it look like for your family to hunger for Jesus? For Jesus to be the one that sustains you from day to day, what would it look like if his faithfulness and self-giving love demonstrated in the cross, what would it look like for that? The love of Jesus, the selflessness of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus to be your family's moral compass. What would it look like for Jesus to be your family's shepherd and guide your family? What would it look like for the resurrection life that Jesus promises to his followers for that to be your family's hope? Can we say that those things are true of most families? Can we even say that those things are true for most families that identify as Christians? I was reading this past week in a book that was published in 2005 called Soul Searching. And these sociologists, they, uh, they, they sort of analyzed, it was teenagers at the time, although those teenagers are no longer teenagers, and what they found to be true of these teenagers that they studied, they also found to be indicative of people across the country. But they looked at the, the religious thoughts and the, the theology of young people in America, and they studied young people across the country. And they summarized what they believed was true of not only these young people, but also their families, of what they believed to be true about God and about religion. And, and here's what they called it. I know this is a mouthful, but it's moralistic therapeutic deism, okay? And they said that moralistic therapeutic deism is the religious thought, the theology of most Americans. And I wanted to kind of walk through that with you and then be real honest and ask ourselves, does this sound like my family? Does this sound like most families that I know? And if it's true, and then we're going to compare that with what Christianity truly teaches, because most of these young people that they studied, the vast majority of them, just like the vast majority of Americans, identified themselves as Christians. Most of them were churchgoers. Most of them were people that believed in prayer, believed in Jesus, said, I'm a Christian. But yet their, their theology could be summed up this way, moralistic, therapeutic deism, has five characteristics as laid forth in this, in this book and this study by the sociologists and soul-searching. Number one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Hence the deism. So there's a creator and he ordered the world and he sort of sets out what's moral, what's right, and what's good. And he watches over humanity. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So they would say, you know, look, I mean, Christianity teaches people to be good and nice and fair, get along with people. So by moralistic 
most young people in America, most people in America tend to think being moral is simply being nice, being nice to other people, being fair, not being hard to get along with. And and they would look at that and say, well, that's pretty much what every religion teaches. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. So why do you gather in religious settings? Why do you pray? Why why, why do you seek forgiveness and, and lifting of your shame and your guilt? That's to feel good about yourself and to live a happy life. And that's what God wants for people is to feel good and be happy. In fact, even things like helping other people and being nice and generous, charitable. Why do you do do that? Well, it makes you feel good about yourself. It helps other people feel good about themselves. It helps us all to be happy. And so they would see that as the central goal of life, to Be good and be happy. Feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So God is, you know, far away and distant most of the time unless you need him and then you pray and you ask God to sort of fix something in your life and that way he's sort of like a genie in a bottle and you just you just ask him, you know, help me with this and sometimes he helps you with that. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. And so they would say, you know, live a good life, feel good about yourself, be happy, be nice to people. And that's pretty much what every religion teaches. And so they really wouldn't see anything necessarily different about Christianity, distinct about Christianity. They would simply say, you know, if you're a Christian, then be a good Christian and, you know, go to church and pray and be nice to people and good people go to heaven when they die. And this sort of summed up the religious thinking of most young people in America at the time. And they looked at those young people and said, that's pretty much what they're getting in their churches. That's pretty much what they're getting from their families. And they call that Christianity. But what these sociologists said was it's more like moralistic, therapeutic deism than the Christianity we find in Scripture. So I want us to really stop and think about our family. If you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, what sort of message are we giving giving to our young people? What sort of message do we believe about God, about Jesus, about what is the goal of life? Is the goal of life to be happy and to feel good about yourself? Is, is really what God expects of us is to simply be nice to people and to be fair and treat each other well? Is, is, that, is, that, is that the central message of Scripture? Is this Christianity or is it something more? Look at, in your Bible at John 14. Let's listen again to the words of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, John chapter 14. And in context, Jesus is, is at the Last Supper and he's told his disciples I'm going away, and you can't follow me right now, and you won't be with me right now. And in fact, you're going to desert me, and Peter, you're going to deny me. And so it's not a fun conversation. And he says in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled about the fact that I'm leaving, about the fact that tonight and the days that follow are going to be incredibly difficult. Then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now again, that that is ah, the core of the Gospel of John, isn't it? 
that if you've seen the Son, then you've seen the Father. And Jesus says, trust in me, believe in me, give your allegiance to me as you do to the Father. You believe in God, believe in me in the same way. You trust in God, trust in me the way you trust in God. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? There there is plenty of room for you in my Father's house, many rooms. And Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for his disciples in his Father's house. Now, I don't think that means that he's like gone to like remodel the rooms, you know, like put up new wallpaper and, you know, clean the floors. I I don't think that's what he means by prepare a place for you, but that by going to the cross and being raised from the dead and ascending to the throne at the Father's right hand, he was preparing a way, he was preparing a place for all of his disciples to be in the Father's house, in the many rooms that are there. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, again, you got to understand the way Jesus is talking and the way that that the questions that are asked and this theme, again, you can see all the way through John, Jesus sort of has one meaning and it's kind of a deeper meaning. And then the disciples have sort of a, a question because they're sort of taking him at face value. Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. You just said, I'm leaving. You can't follow me right now. And then he says, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and then you're going to be there as well. And, and, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, I don't, I don't even know what the destination is. How can I know how to get there, right? How, how do I know how to go if I don't know where you're going? Where is the Father's house? How do we get to the Father's house? That, that's the question, isn't it? That's the question we all ought to be asking. How do I get to the Father's house? How do I connect with God? How do I have a covenant relationship with the Father? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Just think about that for just a second. How do we get to the Father's house? Jesus says, I am the way to God. I am the way I am the truth of God. That's what he's been saying and what John has been revealing to us all throughout this gospel account. Jesus is the truth, right? Jesus is the truth of God. He is God revealed to humanity. Pull back the veil, pull back the curtain, and there is God And and the person we see is Jesus. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the truth. Not Jesus is a truth or that Jesus 
reveals to us some aspects of God, but that Jesus is the full embodiment of God. Amen? Jesus is the full embodiment of God. He is the truth of God. He is the way to God. He is the truth of God. He is the life. He is the life that God has to offer. Again, this is what Jesus has been telling us throughout this gospel account. What John has been unveiling for us. That in him was life and the life was the light of men. I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm not a way, I'm not a choice, I'm not a path, I'm not a truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father. Did you hear that? No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way to the Father's house. I am the Father revealed to you. I am God revealed to you. I am life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. See, and and we look at that and we say, well, I mean, Wes, you can't preach that. Jesus, you can't say that. That's, That's so exclusionary. That's so exclusive. How can you say that there's only one way to God? I mean, I guess you could look at it that way, but you could also look at it as incredibly inclusive. Jesus says, I want the whole world to come to God. And instead of God staying way up there and out there and unrevealed and unseen, God comes here and reveals himself to humanity and says, I want to connect with you. I want you to come to me. I want to be in covenant relationship with you. I am the way for that to happen. I am the truth of God. I am the life that God has to offer. And we can focus in and say, well, I can't believe you'd say there's only one way to God. Well, of course there's only one way to God. Of course there's only one way to live. See, because my problem and your problem aren't that we're mean people and we needed Jesus to come and show us how to be nice. My problem wasn't that I needed somebody to come and show me how to be nice. Your problem wasn't that you needed somebody to come and show you how to be nice. Your problem wasn't that you felt bad about yourself and you needed somebody to come and help you feel good about yourself. Your problem wasn't that you were sad and you needed somebody to come and help you feel happy. Your problem is that you were dead and you needed somebody to come and bring you to life. Your problem was that you were exiled from God and you needed somebody to reconcile you to God. See, if we think our biggest problem is, I don't know how to be nice, or or, I don't know how to feel good about myself, or I don't know how to be happy... And and that's the problem that Jesus solves or the problems that he solves. We misunderstand the gospel. Humanity was dead and in darkness, exiled from God. And Jesus came to defeat the forces of darkness and reconcile us to God, set us free from the reign of sin and death and bring us to life. That's what Jesus offers us. Who else has done that? Who else has accomplished that? Who else offers that? 
So you say, well, Wes, I can't believe you'd say there's only one path to God. Of course there's only one path to God because no one else even claims to defeat the forces of darkness and set you free from the reign of sin and death and to bring you from death to life and reconcile you to the God from whom you were exiled. That's what Jesus offers us. Yes, all kinds of paths can offer you ways to feel better about yourself, to not have so much shame or guilt, to be happier, to be nicer. There's all kinds of philosophies and paths and religions that can teach you all of those things, but there's only one person who is God in the flesh and who can reconcile you to God and bring you to life and give you life eternal and to bring you into the Father's house. There is only one way and only one truth and only one life. And instead of wringing our hands and say, well, I can't believe there would only be one, we should say, thank you, God, that there is one. Thank you, God, that you've made a way, that Jesus is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. And Philip said to him, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I am God revealed to you. I am the Holy of Holies. I am the temple of God. I am heaven and earth united. If you want to see God the Father, then look at me. And Jesus is the only place where that is true. Jesus is the only spot. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only person in whom that is a reality. Do you want to connect with God? See, again, I know we live in a confusing culture and world that says, oh, there's all kinds of ways to connect with God. There's all kinds of ways to get in touch with spiritual things or connect to God. There's all kinds of paths to God. There's all kinds of ways to God. But that's not Christianity. And those two ideas are mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. If we're going to be Christians, then we have to acknowledge that Jesus is the one who makes God visible. Jesus is the one in whom you can meet the Father. Jesus is the way to have a covenant relationship with God. I find that incredibly inclusive, that this message and this offer and this truth is available to all human beings regardless of where you've been or what you've done, regardless of where you come from or what language you speak, Regardless of any other factor, God wants you in his covenant family. God wants you. And does that make us happier? Yes, of course it does. Does that make us feel better about ourselves? Of course it does. Does that take away our shame and our guilt when God forgives us and brings us into his family? Of course. Yes. Do we become kinder and more loving and more patient and more helpful people, yes, of course it does. 
But we have to understand that those things are, are byproducts of being brought into the covenant family of God. And God wants us in his family. And there's only way, one way to come into and be a part of his family. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, that sort of intertwined language That's the only way I can think about it is intertwined language. Jesus talks like this throughout the whole gospel of John. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and then eventually, and then I'm in you, and you're in the Father, and we're in each other. It's this intertwined language. And Jesus is the one in whom those things are true. Jesus is the one in whom the Father dwells, and that he dwells in the Father The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This this is what we love to quote John 3.16, don't we? And with good reason, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, his unique son, because this This one, Jesus, is the one in whom these things are true. The one who can bring you to God. We love to talk about being spiritual people, right? We love spirituality. You want to know what real spirituality is? It's discipleship. It's being followers of Jesus. It's understanding that only in him can I be in the Father Only in Jesus can the Father be in me. Only in Jesus can the Spirit be in me. Only in Jesus can I connect with God. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Now listen to these words. That the Father may be glorified in the Son... If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I think this is incredibly important, don't you? Jesus' central goal in life was not to feel good about himself, right? I'm not discounting feeling good. Everybody likes to feel good, right? Everybody likes to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. But that wasn't Jesus' central goal in life, to be happy. Nor was it the central goal that he gave to his followers, just all I want you to do, guys, is just go out there and feel good about yourself. Just be happy, you know? That, that wasn't the central goal. The central goal was to glorify the Father. That's the self-giving love and faithfulness of Jesus. He did all that he did that the Father might be glorified in him, that the spotlight may be on God. And then Jesus goes on to say that you can live out that same type of life because when you follow Jesus, then you pray and ask him and he grants those things to you for what purpose, to what end, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why why do we pray, God, help us. Help us to reach this neighborhood with the good news of Jesus. And why do we pray it in Jesus' name that the Father might be glorified in the Son? That, that was Jesus' central goal in life. 
And if we're followers of Jesus, that becomes our central goal, that the Father, that the Son, that the Spirit may be glorified in me. May my hands and my feet and my mouth and my life serve God that he may be glorified in me, whether I feel good or not, whether I'm happy or not. I'll take up my cross and follow him that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, church, it's, it's one thing to believe in a God who wants us to be nice to each other, who wants us to feel good about ourselves, who wants to give us things when we pray. It's, it's one thing to believe in a God like that, and a lot of people believe in a God like that, that that's all there is to their religion. I believe in a God that wants me to feel good. I believe in a God that wants me to be happy. I believe in a God who gives me things when I pray. It's one thing to believe in a God like that, and it's something entirely different to be a Christian. To say, my goal in life is to follow Jesus Christ, my Lord. My goal is to live out his self-giving love, his faithfulness that the Father may be glorified in me. My belief is that I connect to God through Jesus. And church, here's another reason why that's good news. Because if you think that it's because of your good works that you connect with God, as most people tend to do, you know, I think most people, you know, good people go to heaven when they die. Do you really want that to be the case? That your good works, that you being nice enough or good enough or fair enough, you have have done enough good things for that to be the basis on which you connect to God? I don't. I'm thankful that Jesus is my connection to God, not me, because I've already failed. And so have you. I'm thankful that it's not on the basis of goodness, my goodness, that I'm connected to God, that I have a covenant relationship with God. So let's not leave it to that. Let's believe the words of Jesus who says, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. In his father's house are many rooms, and he went to prepare a place for us there that where he is, we may be also. Let's thank God that it's by his grace, by his mercy, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because he offered his body and his blood. That's why you and I can have a connection to God. And does that make us good people? Do we come through that relationship transformed, you better believe it. How could you look at the cross and see what sin does and see the lengths to which God went to bring us out of sin? How could we commit our lives to following Jesus and not come out the other side transformed? Yes, happier. Yes, feeling better about ourselves. Yes, doing more good works. But none of those things are the core of our faith. Jesus is the core of our faith. So here's our simple moment of truth question. Is Jesus your family's connection to God? Is Jesus your family's connection to God? Because I know it's so easy for 
households and families to talk vaguely and abstractly about God. God wants us to be good. God wants us to be nice. God doesn't like it when you do that. God doesn't like it when you do this. You need to be good people. God wants us to be happy. And it's really easy for our family conversations for us to talk about God and religion and faith in this sort of abstract, vague way that so many fall into that pattern. It's something entirely different for our faith to center on Jesus that it's Jesus who has connected us with the Father. And it's by believing in him as we believe in God that we're set free, that we're born again by the water and the Spirit, that we become part of the new creation. And you see, when your family conversations begin to sound like that, begin to sound like, look at what Jesus is doing in the world, and he's invited us to be part of it, He's invited us into it. He's living in us. He's accomplishing his work through us. He is our connection to God. He is the way and the truth and the life. It changes everything. Maybe there's somebody here who's ready to begin that journey by being buried with Jesus, united with Jesus in baptism, saying to him, I believe in you as I believe in God. I trust in you the way I trust in God. I know that you have gone and prepared a place for me in the Father's house, and I want to follow you. Maybe you're ready to make that commitment and to have your sins washed away by his blood for him to reconcile you to God. Or maybe you've just sort of wandered away and you need to come back home. Or maybe you just need prayers. Maybe you need your church family to hug you and love you and be there with you and walk through whatever it is you're going through with you. That's what we're here to do. Imperfect people connected to God through Jesus, connected to each other through Jesus. And if we can help you in any way, shape, or form this morning, come forward as we stand and sing this song.